We're in John chapter 10 this morning, and you can turn there either in your Bibles or in your worship guide, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 21. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it up from me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. John chapter 10 is really a continuation of the dialogue that is occurring in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9 last week, we saw that Jesus heals uh, the eyes of a man who is born blind. And this miracle caused a division amongst the religious leaders. Some of the religious leaders say uh, that Jesus is must be divine in some sense because how could someone open the eyes of a man born blind if he wasn't divine in some sense? But the other half of the religious leaders or other portion say, no, he cannot be divine. In fact, he must be an enemy because he has chosen to do this healing on the Sabbath, that's equivalent to working on the Sabbath. He's breaking God's law. If he was really from God, then he wouldn't be breaking God's law. So you have a division amongst the religious leaders, which is centered around the, the basic question of John chapter 9, which is, who is Jesus? Does he have the authority to claim the title that he does in John chapter 9, which is the Son of Man? Is he truly the sent one from God, who is sent to heal the broken and to redeem Israel. This is what's being debated as we enter into chapter 10. And Jesus answers this question by claiming to be the good shepherd. We've been considering throughout our sermon series uh, how God is actually present with us. 
Today we see that he's present with us as our good shepherd. And the best place for the sheep is close to the shepherd. It's really the heart of what we're talking about today, is that the best place for the sheep is close to the shepherd. Now you may have noticed that Jesus uh, changes the metaphor as the teaching unfolds in John chapter 10. It's almost almost a little bit confusing. Some scholars think John is actually taking a couple of different moments when Jesus is teaching about being a shepherd and the people being the sheep and putting them together. Because he begins with a parable in the first five verses, and then he moves to claim that he's the gate of the sheep, and then he moves to say that he is the good shepherd. Now each, each shift is important, and each aspect of that teaching has something to teach us, so we're going to take them in turn and just follow the passage. So Jesus begins with this essentially uh, kind of a parable that he tells in the first uh, five verses of chapter 10. The point is that the authority of the shepherd is recognized in the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. The shepherd has the authority to enter in through the gate. The gatekeeper opens for him. He's recognized, and the sheep know his voice. They hear him calling. As I said uh, in the children's lesson, uh, one of the, um, well, I guess it's true of a lot of animals. It's not necessarily that unique about sheep. But sheep have the ability to recognize the voice of their shepherd. And they have the ability to recognize their own name. So when they're called by the shepherd, they recognize that voice. They recognize their name. And Jesus uses this as a, as a picture of the intimacy that is supposed to exist between he and us, that he also calls, that he also knows our name. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Why does he turn to this language of sheep and shepherd so that we would understand who he is? Remember, he's answering the question of identity that's been raised as a result of the healing of the blind man. Well, even if we were to do a brief survey of sheep and shepherd language in the Bible, we would learn a great deal because it's so prominently used all throughout the Scriptures. You think... Uh, all of the patriarchs were shepherds. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. You hardly get to be a significant leader of Israel without having, you know, logged your time in as a shepherd. We uh, can think of Psalms that make uh, God as the shepherd of his people and uses that language. What we read today in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. David is chosen to be the true shepherd of the flock. Jesus is suggesting that he fulfills this role that David uh, took in part. God says in the Old Testament that he will punish and remove the false shepherds, which we read in Ezekiel 34, and that one day he will come and himself be shepherd to his own people. And in the parable of the shepherd, which occurs in Matthew and Luke, there's a beautiful picture that God will go to almost any length, even over one lost sheep from his flock. It's a picture of of pastoral concern and care on God's behalf for his people, uh, for his flock. So Jesus is claiming this tradition. He, The question is on the table, who is he? Do you have the right to be called the Son of Man? And this, this significant role, the role of shepherd in the history of Israel, he says, yes, that's true of me, and it's true of me in spades. I'm not just a shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I fulfill everything that the shepherding language was pointing to. And in fact, Ezekiel 34 is now coming to the fore, which probably lies directly behind 
John's articulation here, that God, in fact, has himself shown up to be the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus, uh, as he makes himself out to be shepherd, you might think, well, why don't we just follow him as shepherd? You know, if we're the sheep, he's the shepherd, we get it. Why don't the people just respond if they hear his voice and know his voice? We see lots of people not responding. And in fact, we see that it's really not that simple at all. That it's more challenging than we might assume. In verse 1, Jesus says that there are pretend shepherds. Shepherds who aren't really real shepherds. They have broken into the pen. They can't get through the gate. The gatekeeper wouldn't let them in. And so they're thieves and robbers. And in verse 8, he again alludes to them as those who have come in as thieves and robbers. Verse 10, he states that their real purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. They act like shepherds of the sheep, but no, they're not that. They actually just bring destruction. Who's Jesus speaking of? Who are these thieves and robbers breaking into the pen? Well, there are multiple answers to that question. Some people think it's some of the messiahs that rose up, the false messiahs in the generations preceding Jesus. And even in Jesus' own generation, there were Israelites who made themselves out to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament and try to lead rebellions against Rome. But others think that Jesus probably has his sights more closely set on the religious leaders, and I tend to agree with them. I think Jesus is pointing out that the religious leaders have acted as shepherds, but that hasn't really been their intent. They're self-seeking, they're self-oriented, and the fruit of their labors is actually destruction rather than blessing. But because this threat exists, it's one of the reasons that it's so important for the sheep to recognize the voice of the true shepherd the good shepherd. You know, it's um, it's not that easy always to recognize that voice, is it? That we hear as we seek to hear from Jesus. And sometimes, I don't know, if you're like me, I just think to myself, why isn't it more audible? You know, perhaps it would be more easy to recognize if I could hear in a more distinct way. I would imagine if Jesus spoke out loud to me, I wouldn't necessarily forget that voice. I imagine that it stands out. And yet most of the great Christian thinkers and writers throughout the ages have warned us against this kind of this hope or this um, even this expectation. And the reason they do so is they say it, part of the broken nature of our heart is so often to long for this unique and remarkable, miraculous experience of God simply for what it does for us so that we would be sensationalized by the experience itself. And if that were to happen, then we would simply pine after that experience rather than pining after God himself. We would love the experience more than we actually love the person. And so in this, perhaps, there is grace that we are drawn into the Godhead by really having to pursue and to listen and to, to delve into God's Word, which is where we hear the voice of Christ. If we're not familiar with the words of Christ, then we're hardly going to recognize the voice of Jesus, as was perhaps demonstrated in the children's lesson this morning, right? There's much lesson for us in the children's lesson. If we are befuddled uh, to the same degree about whether or not we're hearing the words of Jesus, then we would be fooling ourselves that we hear his voice. And you must also, as part of your regular prayers, be asking for the Spirit, whose job it is to lead you into greater union with Christ 
and to help you hear His voice, to indeed deliver that to you. Have you prayed this week that the Spirit of Christ would actually help you to hear His voice, and not only to hear His voice, but to obey His voice, because really there is no hearing without obeying. Do you think Jesus will continue to speak to you if you don't actually obey what He says? This is the first portion of our passage. Jesus sets the groundwork with this parable of of the sheep and the shepherds. Although, interestingly, he hasn't actually entered into it yet. He hasn't identified himself yet as playing a part in this, but he does so in uh, verse 7. Having told the parable, he identifies himself as the gate uh, for the sheep that they pass through, in and out of safety. Jesus alone is the one. Uh, through whom is found salvation and pasture and abundant life. It's sad to me that often due to our weak wills, perhaps, our weak faith, we often relegate promises like this to the future. Do we not? That we would receive abundant life and enter into green pastures, and we think, what a beautiful picture. I can't wait for that to happen in heaven. I can't wait. Maybe Jesus will come back, maybe I'll die, but either way, that's the way I actually access promises like this from Christ. Why do you make that future? There's nothing in the passage that would suggest that Jesus is speaking of the future. Jesus is offering abundant life to those who actually come to Him now and are, are part of His fold now. It's remarkable how often we push such promises off into the future. In fact, we read Psalm 23 today as the call to worship. And I had a great Old Testament professor in seminary who pointed out that at the end of Psalm 23, uh, which, and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word forever doesn't actually exist there in the Hebrew. It's, I shall dwell in the the house of the Lord all my days. Psalm 23 is, is, is David reflecting on a very temporal experience. In fact, David doesn't give us any indication that he really understands what happens after death. In fact, he gives us clear indication that he's really not sure. That hasn't been revealed at that point in the story. And so, David is celebrating God's abundant life, his pastoral care in his actual life, not putting it off to the future. Why would we be prone to put the promise of abundant life off to the future? Why do we do this? I think one reason is that we don't really understand what abundant life is. Or we allow the voices in our culture rather than the shepherd's voice to define abundant life for us. And so we think, well, abundant life, if my life was really abundant, I would be free from pain and from suffering. If my life was abundant, my my marriage and my friendships and my children and my job would all be going relatively well. We say, who, who models abundant life for us? And part of our hearts say Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. They're beautiful. They have a moat of money that protects them from everything that besets me day to day. They live in the luxury of abundant life. But if, if that's abundant life and we're not experiencing that, then we have to go back to Jesus' words and say, okay, well, either Jesus is wrong, that he couldn't really deliver, or 
It's future. It's going to come in the new heavens and the new earth down the road. And if I do that, if I even move in that direction, say either Jesus is wrong or it's in the future, the result of that is I just don't really need Jesus right now. What we need to do is come back and reassess from a biblical perspective what indeed is abundant life. Maybe it's not that we're free from suffering or pain. Maybe it's not that we have uh, everything going well for us. Maybe it is, in fact, that we actually need adversity and challenge and we need pain and suffering to wake us up from our slumber. To actually make us stop being flesh eaters and to long to actually feed on the blood and the flesh of Christ to eliminate our blindness as portrayed in chapter 9 of John. And without the pain and suffering, without the adversity, these things actually couldn't happen. Because you know as well as I do, when things are going just honky-dory in your life, it is the time period in which you spend the least time thinking about God and pursuing Christ. It is the very adversity that wakes you up. And so in reconsidering what abundant means, we come running back to the shepherd and understand it's not... It's not freedom from this, but it is the promise of protection. It is the promise that He will shepherd us through that in a way that ultimately will be good for us. It's that confidence that He invites in His role as good shepherd. And in verse 11, that's where Jesus turns. I've got the parable. Verse 7, He says, I'm the gate to the sheep. In verse 11, He says, I am the good shepherd. Where He's been moving to all along. Well, how do you know the good shepherd from the false shepherds? Not a bad question to ask if you're ever relating to uh, Jesus or to the lesser shepherds like the religious leaders in John. Jesus says that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know the difference because a hired hand, as soon as the wolf shows up, is out of there. He runs. He's not going to put himself in between the sheep and the wolf, but the place of the good shepherd is always between the wolf and the sheep. That's where he stands, because he cares for the flock. Some of you have suffered incredibly under false uh, false shepherds. I've heard some of those stories. Some of you have stories I haven't heard, but you've been in places where false shepherds abused their authority, and all that was the result was destruction. They were thieves and robbers, and they had broken into the fold by unjust ways. And when you find yourself in that place, you you need to be willing to, to leave and to call it for what it is. And it, this is a reminder from me to you that if we take this passage seriously, if you ever conceive that Zach or I or the elders are not being good shepherds, that we seek, cease to stand between wolves and you, then you should call us out or leave because we've ceased to actually follow after and embody the example of the Good Shepherd. Jesus, as our Good Shepherd, He cares for us. He leads us. He lays down His life for us. What what perfect and ultimate compassion. Why would we be reluctant to follow Him? Why would we, why would we hesitate to, follow, to, to stay closely to Him and to listen to other voices in the midst of that? I mean, who is going to care for you better than the Good Shepherd? Why is it that we wander? What will really melt your heart to the degree that you will begin to wake up and to trust in Him? 
Cray Deeds is a Virginia state senator and uh, who lives on a small farm in the southern part of the state. His son Gus grew up a, a pretty sweet kid with a sweet disposition, had a, a little bit of a talent for music. He played the trombone and the banjo and uh, really was, was nothing particularly out of the ordinary. Uh, but in college, he started to act erratic. He started to... Um, one semester he left and kind of went on a cross-country trip without telling his dad and started to bounce checks. And he would come back and um, would, again, come back to school for a little bit and disappear for a little bit. And his dad didn't know really what was going on. As his behavior became more erratic, his dad tried to, to insert himself more and more. And eventually his son Gus, he started to talk about suicide which concerned his father greatly, and again, more help. And then um, he eventually his dad, uh, Cray, saw his Facebook page, which really indicated that Gus believed that his professors at college were conspiring against him. And over time, he just had this picture of uh, Gus would go on medication, and it would help for a time. He would go off it and would become uh, increasingly depressed and erratic and unpredictable in his behavior. And it came to culmination one morning, Cray uh, was out, went out to feed the chickens. And uh, to be met by his son, who proceeded to stab him twice in his back. And then as he turned, he went into a slashing and stabbing frenzy, which effectively left Cray uh, for dead. Gus turned and uh, walked away and proceeded to commit suicide. Afterwards, it became clear that, uh, that Gus had, had struggled with a very deep case of schizophrenia. He had extensive journals which described that he believed that his father was trying to poison him and that he believed that if he killed his father, he would ascend to heaven. So he was hearing all kinds of voices. He was very... Um, very much broken mentally in this capacity. And uh, his dad, Cray, actually lived through and continues on as a Virginia state senator. Um, and one of the first things you, 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 you're caught by are all the wounds on his face uh, when you see his picture. One of the remarkable things about the story is, as he recounts it, he said, um, you know, of course he was shocked. He had no grid. He didn't see this coming. And uh, he said, you know, all I could say was when I turned and my son attacked me was, Gus, I love you. And as I read that, I thought, oh, that's our story. That we have lashed out against our Heavenly Father. We have slashed and stabbed and hung him on a tree. And even in the midst of all that aggression against him, he has uttered simply to us, I love you. One of the sad things about reading Deed's story is how racked with guilt he is. Over and over again, I, I could have done more. I should have known how sick he was. I should have sought other counsel. On and on and on. And so I read that. I celebrated in one sense just thinking, you know, that's the one thing that God is never going to say. That I should have or I could have done more. Because he's laid down the life of the good shepherd on our behalf. Come to the shepherd. Seek his voice this morning. He knows your name. 
It is the safest place for the sheep. Let's pray. Our good shepherd, we thank you this morning for your pastoral care. Indeed, there is no place. No place that is safe, no place that is pasture, no place that is protection. Except that which is by your side. So we thank you for knowing our names. We thank you for calling us by name. And we ask that you would help us to hear your voice and to follow in all faithfulness. We ask for your mercy in this, in Christ's name. Amen.